Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome. Before we get started, I would first and foremost like to extend a very warm welcome to all of our Bass students. Welcome. Welcome. We are excited that you're here. We love you. We love your country. I, I had the opportunity of visiting Bass Country two or three years ago now, and it, it's amazing. It's beautiful. Your food is beautiful. I hope, I hope uh, that you enjoy your time as much as I did in your country, that you enjoy being here in the States with us. If you're not sure where Basque Country is, it's there. That is Spain and France to the north. It's a little, little pocket of a bunch of beautiful people that uh, we love and we're, we're super glad to have with, with us. So welcome to the Bass students and also welcome to anyone else who is new and visiting with us. We're glad you're here. Again, we often say we're not a perfect church, but we love and serve a perfect Savior and that makes all the difference. And it is this perfect God, this perfect Savior that I would like to speak with you about this morning. Last week, Caleb kicked us off in a new series we're calling None Greater, Magnifying God Most High. And simply put, we're spending the summer basically putting a magnifying glass over who the Bible declares the God of heaven to be. Now, I don't know if you're like me or not in this, but human beings, and myself included, we have a nasty habit of sort of jumping to conclusions, right? Without first getting all of the facts or, or doing all of our own research, I don't know if anybody's guilty of this. I'm going to make a confession here this morning, and I'm imagining that, that a lot of you are, are kind of in the same boat as me, right? Someone, you'll, you'll overhear a conversation, and it's about some policy or, or political thing or economic thing, and man, you've got a strong opinion about it, because you read a headline. You didn't actually take the time to open the article and read what was in it. You just read a headline, and boy, you're fired up, and you got your opinion, and you're clear, right? See, a lot of times we jump to conclusions based on headlines and hearsay when we don't really know that much about what we're talking about. And again, I've done it. I've done it. Am I the only one that does this? Come on. You're, although, come on, that's not true. Greg and Joy, you're full of it. We both know it. Everyone knows it, right? We all do this. We can jump to snap conclusions without first getting all of the, all of the information. We do this on things like economics and politics. Sometimes science is kind of like, is that a fact? Or is this just like an idea that people throwing out an opinion? It can happen like that. And I believe that this is true about how we inform our opinions and our ideas about who God is. Rather than doing our own research, we listen to headlines and to hearsay, and then we form our opinions about that. And I don't know about you, but that's just not a very helpful way to form an opinion or to get the facts. We need to do our own research. Now, this is probably going to bring up some trauma for some of you from your high school days, but how many of you all know how to remember writing a, a research paper, right? Horrible, horrible time, right? And your teacher would say, well, we don't want Wikipedia as a source. We don't want Ask Jeeves or, or don't just Google something. I want to see primary sources in this research paper, right? We need to figure out what the primary source is on any given topic, go back to the original thing, and form our opinion from there. So those of you who remember that will, will know what a primary source is. Those of you who don't, I'll tell you. Here's what a primary source is. Primary sources are the evidence of history, the original records, 
or objects created by participants or observers at the time of a, of a historical event, okay? So it's eyewitness accounts, recorded records. This could be scientific. This could be governmental. It's, it's a bunch of documents and a bunch of records that we can go back to at the time that something happened. And we can go back as a historian and we can use that to interpret and analyze what happened in the past fairly accurately, okay? Now, the Bible, I believe, is a primary source. It's, an, it's a group of, of, of books from different writers, some of whom were eyewitnesses, some of them are records from government. It's original records from different people recording God's interaction throughout the history of humanity. And if we, if we allow and say that the Bible is a primary source that documents God's working in history, then it seems to reason that rather than taking someone else's word, whether it be a headline or, or hearsay from our culture, rather than taking someone else's word about how, who God is, we could go to the scriptures, to the Bible as a primary source and hear directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, who God claimed himself to be and showed himself to be throughout history. And so as we work through our series this summer, I want you to know this. I'm not concerned with who you think God is. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about who I think God is. I want to go to the primary source of the Bible, and I want to ask, who does Jesus say God is? You see, Jesus claimed to be God. If I claim to be God, you're going to assume one of two things about me, that I'm either a liar and a horrible person who tells lies, or I'm crazy and I need to be put into an asylum, right? Jesus claimed to be God. That means he can't be just a good, good teacher, like people say. He's a liar, or he's a lunatic. He's crazy. He's off his rocker. He was claiming to be God, or there's a third choice. He actually was who he claimed to be, and that's what I believe. And so I don't want to ask, who do you think God is? I don't want to ask, who do I think God is? I want to ask the man who claimed to be God, who died and rose three days from death later. I want to ask that guy. Who do you know God to be? And I want to spend the whole summer learning to know the God that Jesus knows, okay? So that's what we're going to do. That's where we're going. And this morning, we're going to deal with one of the hardest and most popular questions that come to us when we talk about who God is. And the question is this, is God good? Is God good? When you and I look out at the whole world, and we hear screaming babies because they're suffering for some reason, right? <laughs> or we see evil and, and bad stuff happen. We, we, we say, man, if God's all-powerful and he's not doing stuff about all this craziness and the war in Ukraine and disease and cancer, if God's all-powerful, then surely he must not be good because he's not doing anything about it. Is God good? That's the question we're going to examine this morning. And we're going to do it from the Bible in Matthew 19. There's a rich young man who comes to Jesus, and I believe at the heart of his question, he doesn't ask this exactly, but I believe at the heart of his question is the question that we're asking this morning. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Here's the interaction. Matthew 19, be on the screen, you can follow along. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, we're told, And behold, a man... He's a rich young man. We're told that a little bit later in 19. A rich man, young man, he comes up to Jesus saying, Teacher... <clears throat> what good must I do 
to have eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep his commandments, or keep the commandments, the commandments from the one who is good. So here we see there's a young, wealthy man. He comes to Jesus with a question, and he's asking a question about goodness, about goodness. In Mark and Luke's account, we're going to look at Mark 10 a little later. It's the same story, just worded a little different. The young man, he comes up, and he actually refers to Jesus as a good teacher. He says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to be good? What good must I do to inherit eternal life? Essentially, he wants to know, how can I get to heaven when I die? He's assuming there's an afterlife. He believed that that there's something that comes after this life, and he wants to know, how do I get to the good place? How do I make whoever's up there, that angry judge, what do I need to do to appease him so he lets me in when I die? And Jesus' response to this young man tells us a lot about who he knows Jesus, or who he knows God to be. He tells the young man first, why do you ask me about what is good? He says, there is only one who is good. You see, Jesus was not unclear as to who God was. Jesus wasn't standing like we do, asking the question, is God good? Hmm, I don't know. That's not, that's not Jesus. That's not, that's not who he knows God to be. No, he declares emphatically to this rich young man, he's not asking the question, is God good? But rather, he emphatically declares that God is the only one who is good, period, full stop. God is good. That's the God Jesus knows to be. And now I think it would be helpful to give a little bit of definition to that word good. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I said sometimes when we're reading scripture, it's really good to pause, grab a word, and then meditate on it. Look it up in the dictionary, read it a couple different ways. And I think goodness or, or what it means to be good is, a, is something that we need to define. What do we mean when we ask the question, is God good? What do we mean when we say, oh, he's a pretty good guy? What do we mean by that? What does the word good mean? So here's the definition. The word good means that which is morally right, virtuous, or ethical. So it has some elements of justice, doing justice, doing righteousness. Simply, it means that we can trust God to do what is right always. That he is perfectly righteous. He, he lives with a rightness. He's right all the time. He's good. He's just. We can trust that he will do what's best for himself and for you and I always in the world. And I realize that this is a very hard thing for us to accept, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when I look out at the world, I see a whole lot in this world that is not good. It's not good. A whole lot of suffering. I've experienced a decent amount of suffering in my life. I imagine all of you have as well. Just recently, my brother-in-law's, or my brother's father-in-law, was diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. His name is Dan Stuckey, he's from Archibald. Some of you might know him. Dan is a good man by the world's standards. He goes to church regularly. He was an elder at his church. He's raised four godly children who are raising their families in the Lord. 
Over the years, he's built quite a business for himself in the metal fabrication industry. He's, he's built a great business. He's ran it with integrity. His business has provided a lot of good, a lot of benefit to society because he repairs things, he welds things, he fixes things so that people can use those tools to build and make things and deliver groceries on trucks and all of that stuff. He's done a lot of good that way, but he's also used the pro- profits from that business to do good as well in the community. And not only that, Dan loves Jesus. Dan has made it his life mission to tell others about the love of Jesus. He's tried to do good to everyone that's come across him. If he were here this morning, his face would be red right now because he's humble too. He, I didn't ask him if I could share this because I knew he would say no. He's like, I don't care, I'm using it. He's a good guy. He's a good guy by the world's standards. And now, in his late 50s, he gets diagnosed with cancer. Folks, it makes me want to ask the question of God, Lord, how is this good? If you could allow this to happen to someone who is so good, how could you possibly be good? Friends, if I'm not careful, if we're not careful, when catastrophe strikes we can make the same mistake that this young rich man who comes to Jesus, we can make the same mistake that he makes and we can incorrectly assume that God is an angry judge rather than a good and faithful father and we can question his goodness. This view that God is an angry judge, I think this is what stands behind this guy's question, right? He says, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Essentially, he's saying, how can I appease that angry judge up in the sky? How can I make him happy? Just tell me the thing I have to do. This is such a common narrative that gets told about Jesus as God. People throughout history have assumed that if you do evil, then evil will find you. And that if you do good, well, then only blessings and goodness will come into your life. But folks, that's a pretty naive view of the world, isn't it? Jesus affirms as much. In Matthew 5, he tells us in verse 45 that God makes his son, which I love that. Just think about how powerful the son is for a second. God claims ownership of it. It says God God makes his son rise on the evil and the good. And he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. You see, as much as you and I would like to think that our goodness and our behavior, our good deeds somehow control or manipulate the God of heaven to treat us differently or more special than others, this is simply not how life works. In Romans 2.11, we're told that God does not show favoritism in regards to treating us based off of our good works or our evil works. There's consequences to be sure, but the opinion of God and our ability to know him is unrelated to our good works or bad. Several times in scripture, Jesus is asked this question point blank. Catastrophe strikes, a natural disaster kills, a disease maims, and everyone wants to know who sinned. Surely someone must have sinned for that angry judge to be doling out this punishment who sinned. Jesus was asked this question on three different occasions. One in Luke 13. About this time, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some good church folk Galilees. He murdered some church-going Galilees as they were in the church offering sacrifices at the temple. 
And Jesus says, do you think those Galileans, those good church-going people, do you think they were worse sinners than all the others in Galilee? Who sinned? Is that why they suffered, Jesus asked? Not at all, he says. And then he turns the tables. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Jesus wants us to know when we look at suffering, there is something far worse than suffering and death in this life. And it's suffering and death that's in the next. He says, you need to know God. That's what's important. Don't ask who sinned. Ask if you're correct and in, in your right relationship with the Lord. He continues in verse 4. What about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Jesus again says, no. There is not always a direct correlation between sin and suffering. Sometimes there's consequences, but not always. It's not that clear cut. No, and again I tell you that unless you repent, you too will perish. There's something worse than death, friends. That's what Jesus is saying. In John 9, he's confronted with blindness. A man is born blind from birth. And his disciples come to him, they say, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Surely, surely they must have done something because the angry judge in the sky doesn't just dole out suffering for no random reason. Who sinned? And Jesus says in verse 3, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. And it's helpful to remember in this story, if you were to keep reading in this passage, Jesus sees the suffering of this man and he is not indifferent to it. He looks at this blindness and in his heart he says, this is not how I created my world to be. And so moved towards love, moved by this man's suffering, he moves towards him and he heals him with his power and with his love. He restores sight to this gentleman's blindness. Many times when suffering hits, we all want to know who sinned. We tend to think of God as some evil, angry judge up in heaven who's eager to dole out punishments. But each time Jesus is presented with this narrative about God, he rejects it outright. Jesus shows us that there is no simple formula to interpret the suffering that seems to randomly afflict our world. Right now, a lot of times, it's a mystery to us. We can't understand it. Along with that, Jesus never promised that we wouldn't suffer. In fact, he tells us to prepare for it. He says, take heart, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He said, you will suffer, but I'm doing something. I'm not indifferent to your pain and suffering. Trust me, wait on me. I am doing something. Jesus confirms for us that the presence of suffering does not contradict the goodness of God. And I'm sure that many of us will struggle with that statement. I'm sure there might be some objections here, right? If God is good, then how could he allow me to suffer this way? Why won't he explain himself to me? I could never believe in a God that has the power to end suffering, but appears to be doing nothing to stop it. I can't trust him. He must not be good. Friend, do you know that you're not the only person who's ever felt that or asked that question in your heart? 
The Lord knew that we would feel that some way, and so he tells us a story in the Bible, that primary source, about a man who asked just that question. It's a man named Job. If you've never read the story of Job, I'd encourage you to get a study Bible, a good one like the ESV, to read through the story of Job and to read the notes that go along with it. And as you read, you will discover that Job had it all. He was hashtag blessed, right? Super blessed. He had all the kids. He had a huge house. He had the white picket fence and a bunch of money and a smoking hot wife. It doesn't say that. That's my paraphrase, right? He had it all. He was healthy, wealthy, prosperous, and wise. And in a day, it was all taken from him. His kids died. His cattle died. His houses were wiped out. He's afflicted with sores and lesions all over his body. And Job has some friends that show up that aren't very good friends, and they show up with the assumption, with that misconception, believing God is an angry judge. And they say, Job, surely you must have done something to deserve this. Or maybe your kids did something. Someone did something because the angry judge is putting the hammer down. And Job insists, no, I'm innocent. And what's crazy is the Bible affirms it. They say that actually Job was innocent in everything, that he was righteous. Not that he was perfect, but because he had a relationship with the God of heaven, when the Lord looked at him, he thought, at, he thought of him as a good and righteous person because it's faith that made him righteous. And so when Job says, I'm innocent, the Bible says, yeah, that's actually true. Job was innocent. In fact, we get the curtains peeled back a little bit and we get to see a little bit more what's going on. Job can't see it from his vantage point, but it was his goodness and his righteousness that brought the calamity into his life. This is crazy. In the first part of Job, Satan enters the heavenly courts and he's talking to God and God's like, hey, have you seen my servant Job? That dude, he's the man. He's good. He loves me. He's, he's raising his kids who love me. He's a great guy. Have you seen him? And Satan says, well, yeah, of course. Look at, you gave him health, wealth, prosperity, and wisdom. Of course he loves you. You blessed his socks off. Let me strike him. Then we'll, ta- we'll see what his character is. So God says, okay. So the suffering is actually a result of his goodness. And there might be some objections to that. That's for another sermon. But suffering comes, and Job is beside himself. And he cries out to God, and he wants to know, why in the heck is this happening? God, I know you're up there. I know I've not done anything wrong. Why is this happening? Answer me. Answer me. And get this. God does. God does answer him. The creator God of heaven moves towards Job. He doesn't have to, but he does. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, I like it in the King Jimmy version because King Jimmy's got a way with words sometimes. In Job 38.3, God shows up and he says, Job, gird your loins like a man right? Isn't that so good? The God of heaven shows up and he says, Job, brace yourself like a man because the God of heaven is going to respond to you. You've asked me, why does suffering happen? Here I am. Let me explain myself. And do you know what the God of Job says? He says, Job, do you know where I store the lightning? Have you seen the storehouses where I keep the hail 
Do you take care of the lioness and feed its cubs? Have you tamed a dragon? Do you have it on a leash? Do the critters of the ground serve you? Does the wind blow at your command? Where were you when I stretched out the sky? When I measured it, when I told the land to stop and the ocean to start, where were you when I said to those proud waves, this far you will come and no farther? Church, have you ever been to the ocean? I had the opportunity to surf once. It wasn't, it wasn't big waves, according to the Hawaiians. But for the Ohio boys, like, these are monsters, okay? So I get out there, they were like 6 or 12 feet, and I try to ride one or two. And then I try and get on the big one. It's like curling over. It's like an eight-footer. And that thing sent me. And it pushed me down under the water. And I was swimming, and I couldn't get back up. It put the fear of the ocean and the fear of the waves into me. It tumble-dried me like a piece of clothing in my dryer. The Lord of heaven shows up to Job, and he says, Job, when you speak to the waves, do they stop? Do they stop? For over 100 verses, God declares his majesty and power and goodness to Job in a form of these questions. Where were you, Job? Have you created the earth? Where were you when I set the stars in the sky? Do you know when goats give birth? I do. I keep track of all of them. Do you give strength to the horses? Were you the one that decided to put a flowing mane on their necks? The point is this. Job does not have the understanding, wisdom, or vantage point to comprehend all that God sees and weighs. Job is in no position to question God's goodness in what he allows and does because Job has no clue about how everything in this world works together. Loved ones, I want you to hear this. You cannot always understand the ways of God. His ways are beyond you. But just because you can't make sense of this world sometimes does not mean that God is not good. He is good. He is good. He is good. And do you know how I know that? Because he meets with Job. Because he comes and he speaks with one of his creatures, an ant. He doesn't need to, but he comes because he loves and he is good. And he doesn't give Job the answer that he wants. He doesn't tell him why. He simply gives him his presence. And for Job, the presence of God is enough. It's comfort. He says, Lord, I spoke of things I didn't understand. I still don't get why I'm suffering, but now that you're here, I'm going to be okay. Now that the God who speaks to waves and makes them stop is here, now that, now that I know he'll move towards me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. For the sake of time, I was going to take you back into Mark, Mark 10. We're going to skip that. We're going to skip to the end. If you said, Levi... How do you know that God is good? And folks, I will stand here proudly and tell you that God is good all the time. 
All the time, God is good. And I've shared my story before. Some of you know that my dad passed away in a freak construction accident when I was eight. That was not good. That was bad. And yet, our God is good. Do you know how I know that? Because of Jesus. We could talk about science and archaeology, and I could build a case for the Bible and all of that stuff, and I will happily do that. But if you put me to the wall and you said, how do you know that God is good? I will simply point you to the cross and to Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, that is how I know that God is good. Because in Philippians 2, we have been told that our good God did not consider equality with God as something to cling on to, right? He didn't become proud and arrogant and look down on us because he was too good. Look at, these, these, look at this trash heap down here. I'm too good to be messing around with these guys with these disrespectful ants. He didn't say that. In his goodness, he said, I love you and I am going to move towards you in that love. And we're told that the God of heaven put flesh on and he became like one of us. And he suffered like you and I do. I don't know of any other God that was willing to suffer in all of the religions, this is the only one. Jesus left heaven and he put on flesh and he became like you and I. He gets it. He knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus lost his dad at a young age. We're told, we're told of his dad, Joseph. The last time we hear about him is when they escaped to Egypt. Was about, he was, Jesus was about two years old. Fast forward to Jesus' ministry. It starts at when he's 30 years old. Joseph's nowhere to be seen. The only assumption that we can jump to is that he died. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to suffer. And because he willingly left heaven and died in our place and rose to new life, when you and I suffer, he promises to meet us just like Job's God met him. And he might not take care of all of it right away, but I guarantee you that you will find whatever you're dealing with, if Jesus shows up, you'll realize that it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Jesus suffers for us and with us. And because of what Jesus was willing to do for us, he promises us a glorious future and a hope. Suffering does not have the final word. To anyone who says, how could I believe in a God who, who does nothing about suffering? Respectfully, I would say, you haven't understood what God is doing about suffering in Jesus. He is doing something about suffering. It's not on our timetable. He's patient because he wants you to know him. But he is doing something, and one day, He's going to come back and put an end to suffering. Suffering will not have the final word. God's goodness will. His goodness and his love displayed on who Jesus is and what he's done for us on our behalf. Because of Jesus, the bad thing that happened with my dad turns into a good thing because my dad knew Christ and I know that one day I will see him again in heaven. It changes everything, church. It changes everything. God is good. He's good all the time. David confirms it for us in a psalm. Psalm 145. He says, The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and braces up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, 
And you, Lord, give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God is good, friends. And because God is good, you should make it your life's goal to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to love you, to know you. Thank you for the opportunity to live with you in relationship. Lord, we don't always understand everything that happens in this life. We're not always happy about it. A lot of things frustrate and confuse us, Lord. I pray that that none of us would be like that rich young ruler, that we would ask, what good must we do to inherit eternal life? But rather, we would receive your words and that you would, you would um, set the record straight and remind us that it is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven by good works, that it is impossible for humans to do anything good, but that you have not left, left us on our own You have made everything possible because of God, because of your work on Jesus. And so, Father, let us not trust in our good. Help us to trust in the good of Jesus and know that he suffers with us in our weakness. He promises to comfort us and to walk with us when we struggle. And he promises us a bright and glorious future because of what he has done for us. Give us faith, Lord Jesus. Be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.